This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hey there, Corey Lundberg here from Altus Performance, and this is episode 16 of the Earn Your Edge podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed our two-part chat with Soyeon Yu and MB Park the last couple weeks, and congrats to Soyeon who won the Women's Japan Open in between those two episodes. So if you haven't checked them out, I would highly recommend that you do so, and then come back and listen to this week's interview with Dr. Wade Gilbert. And if you're not a coach or a sports scientist or an academic, you might not have heard of Dr. Wade, but I guarantee you, you're familiar with some of the coaches and athletes that he has had a hand in developing and influencing. He is widely recognized as the coach doc, coaching consultant, who, in addition to his work as a researcher and sports scientist and professor at Fresno, is charged with going into different sports organizations, professional and amateur, and making the coaches better who then are are better equipped to make the athletes better. And earlier this spring, Cameron and I joined Wade on a study tour through a few high-performing organizations, most notably UCLA, where Dr. Wade did some work early in his career and did a lot of research with Coach John Wooden examining his coaching philosophy and actions. And a few days with Wade just had us invigorated as coaches. He's put a great deal of thought and effort into understanding what great coaching looks like. And he's had a major influence on what we do at Altos Performance. His book, Coaching Better Every Season, is a frequently referenced resource for us internally. So if you're a coach, this is an absolute must listen. But there's also some awesome insights for athletes and parents in here as well. Wade and Cam dig into a lot of topics around creating a culture of excellence. You know, what are the behaviors and mindsets and tactics deployed by successful high performers, which is really at the heart of what we're trying to do with this entire podcast. So there's something in here for everyone. This is a really important conversation that I hope reaches a lot of people as it's got a ton of messages that can really make an impact on coaches and athletes who are driven to improve and striving to earn an edge. So sit back and enjoy episode 15 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Dr. Wade Gilbert and Cameron McCormick. Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm joined by a special guest today, Dr. Wade Gilbert of California State, Fresno. He's an internationally renowned coaching consultant and sports scientist. In fact, he has degrees in physical education, human kinetics, and education. And he's an author of a favorite book of mine, a coaching resource that I refer back to ever since I was given it by him personally, which was an awful honor, called Coaching Better Every Season. So if you don't already own that, then certainly we'll be speaking to that and you should go out there and use that as a primary resource in your both coach development, but um, also just development in any area of your life. And lastly, He's also the editor-in-chief of the International Sport Coaching uh, Journal, which is also a, a tremendous resource for all those coaches out there. Now, Wade, let's kick it off. You clearly weren't born with all of these accolades and, and honors, nor the skills it took to earn them. So I guess help us understand where you came from. I know you're Canadian, but you're, as our roads do, they travel many different pathways to get to where we are today. So can you fill the listeners in on how you've got to the point you are, both professionally and also personally. Sure. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me on the on the show. Really an honor to to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. So for me, it was 
growing up in a small town in northern Canada, it's 5,000 people, and just lots of what we might refer to as free play. So lots of adventures, lots of exploring, lots of opportunities to, to just play, uh, which I think is is something that we're noticing more and more that we're missing a little bit from uh, from our daily lives and kind of uh, deprogramming our kids to just take initiative and play and learn and explore. So I was fortunate uh, both from a, a time period and then also where I geographically, where I, where I grew up, had an opportunity to really develop that curiosity, you know, that, that natural curiosity that we all have inside us. Uh, was allowed to really nurture that, just blessed with being born in the right place, I think, to be honest with you, a good, a good place to do that. And then uh, just followed the seasons, multi-sport athlete and hockey, of course. You're pretty much born with skates when you grow up in northern Canada. And, I bet. Uh, skate before you can walk, pretty much. And we were lucky we had, uh, my dad was my first coach, and we were the the house in the, the local neighborhood that had the, the backyard rink, just tramp down the snow and and water your backyard and you got a ice surface and <laughs> played so you get home from school and you know this idea of free play just you're out on on the ice making up games playing games no coach no referees no scoreboard you're just you know and it's multi-age right so it's uh you got six-year-olds playing alongside 12-year-olds and you just you stay until your mom or dad call you home for dinner <laughs> that was about it and so lots of play. And then uh, after that, probably around 16, I guess, I realized it was pretty obvious I wasn't going to make a living as an athlete. So I figured the next best thing would be hanging out in a gym, wearing shorts and playing. So I figured a PE teacher, that was what my mindset was. Well, I would want to keep being around this. So I, I figured I would end up uh, being a physical education teacher. And while I was in college, kind of, you know, kept learning and exploring and discovered that, wow, you could actually do research on this and, mm -hmm. and continue to keep learning. And, and so I just kind of followed that path and, and this one was, thing led this to another. And this was in know, Ottawa. Yes. Yeah. In Canada, University of Ottawa, which, you know, we sometimes talk about talent hotbeds and you look for kind of clusters of talent that come out of certain regions or areas. And again, just right place, right time. Very fortunate. Along, there's probably, I'd say, out of that little group of people that we worked with, we had Terry Orlick, who's widely regarded as one of the top sports psychologists in the world, was in our group and one of my instructors and advisors, and then several of the top, what we might refer to as scientists of sport coaching, sport pedagogy would be the formal term. Dr. Pierre Trudel and John Salmella. And so just really lucky in terms of being around great teachers and great artists in a sense, you know, of their craft. And then all the students, we had this stable of really great people learning at the same time who now are amongst the most influential people in the world in terms of talent development. People like Jean Cote, who's the widely regarded as one of the top talent development scientists in the world and Gordon Bloom who's at McGill University in coaching science. So just really, really lucky. And then took advantage of that opportunity and kept learning and from there went to UCLA. And again, <laughs> right place, right time, working with um at the International Center for Talent Development, where I got to play more in terms of science, research and science was the advisor there. And that's where I met Coach John Wooden and it's just continued i've just 
kept connecting, you know, keep surrounding yourself with people smarter than you and good things usually happen. <laughs> sure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. What interests me most there is that you've had opportunity to compete as a multi-sport athlete, as you said, and then that led to wanting to stay plugged into phys physical education, education generally, and then human kinetics. But can you pick the point in time that you decided I'm going to go down this uh, channel or pathway towards being the pracademic as a, a word I think that you mm -hmm. used when we first met uh, versus the applied coach. I'm going to pick a sport, let's say the, the one you grew up with most ice hockey and actually coach that at a, a recreational or amateur collegiate or even professional level. Was there a, was there a point in time you remember yeah. that you decided yeah. that you were going to go that direction? I think so. I've been reflecting as you get older in life, you tend to reflect more on on how you ended up where you where you are, <laughs> kind of looking in the rearview mirror and saying, "How the heck did I end up here?" Mm -hmm. But actually, golf was a big part of my my life too. Early on, my father loved golf, and you know, growing up in a small town in northern Ontario was pretty much hockey in the winter and golf in the summer. But unfortunately, summer was two months, so I didn't get a lot of golf practice in. But it was still, uh, and I, I have a picture. Uh, one of my most cherished pictures, my dad, I'm on a driving range and I think I'm two and my dad's holding me up and has this, you know, the driver. So I always, I just love that game. Always been fascinated with, but I never really had a chance to pursue it, you know, to, to compete in it, I guess, given where I, where I grew up. But I, I think when it hit me was I, I've always really been curious by nature. And it's funny, I have a, this, uh, you know, you can get cards or boards that um, explain the meaning of your name. And someone gave me this board and has the meaning of the word Wade. You know, why did you end up with that name? Why mm -hmm. did my mom pick that name? My mom or my dad? And the meaning of the word of my name, and believe it or not, is wonder. Old okay. English meaning wonder. And, you know, I, I looked at that and I said, oh, what? Okay, that might explain a little bit why I am who I am. Yeah. But um, so I've always, I'm not the type of person to stand still very much. And I really like the journey. I like the adventure and I, I love to learn. And so being in a university setting that really nurtured that and then being around professors who I kind of noticed their lifestyle and I thought, wow, this would be a neat way to contribute and make a living and, and, and be able to uh, still be a part of sport and performance. And and so I think it was probably when I was uh, early in my undergraduate degree and I really started to think about, you know, what kind of life, not not a job. For me, it's never been about a job. I'm not, I don't, I've never really wanted a job. I always tell my students to, you know, there's lots of jobs. You can get a job. But if you have an opportunity to really pursue your passion and make a living at the same time, that, you know, that's, that's the ideal. So, I've just been curious about how people who are passionate about what they do are able to sustain that and, and support that. And so I, I was kind of more focused on a lifestyle and a, and a way to keep learning and, and stay in adventure mode. And this has allowed me to do that. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think that you and I, as you mentioned early, we're cut out from the same cloth in the sense that we travel this life's journey, this life's pathway, making decisions based on answering the most primary of questions. Does what we do offer us opportunity for our heart to sing out with some level of joy that this is exciting to us? And that's why you do what mm. you do and I do what I do. And our paths are, I guess, tied together in the world of 
coaching and and athletics. But one thing I think it's very important for us to uncover here is or discuss are the insights as best we can reflecting on what great coaching looks like. I mean, you've spent time around, you mentioned John Wooden and Steve Hansen, and the list goes on in your book of insights that you share with anyone that might read it about what great coaching looks like in order to be able to cultivate that. So if we, and I know it's a broad umbrella question, but if we were to try and answer some bullet points on what great coaching looks like, what would that answer be? Yeah, I get asked that question quite a bit. So fortunately, I've been able to have practice in trying to answer it. But mm-hmm. uh, like anything, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know. And that was really evident when I wrote that book. It took me, they asked me, the publisher asked me to write that book. And it took me three years to write that book. And eventually, I'm, I'm not done. I was never really done. But they said, <laughs> enough's enough. We got to finish this and publish something. <laughs> but, you know, you just dig in. It's like a, a, a rabbit hole, right? You start digging into something, whether it's feedback or relationships or practice design or whatever it might be. And it's just, it's never ending where you can go and learn and people you can speak to. So, what I've noticed with the great coaches is number one, it's not a, it's not an act. You don't play the role of a coach. It has to be genuine. You have to be true to yourself. And yeah, some coaches are compensated very, very well. And I see that when my a lot of my students come in and say, oh, I want to be a football college football coach because Nick Saban makes $11 million a year. I said, yeah, but there's one Nick Saban. Okay. So you, and you, you know, the path to get there. You're going to be moving every two years. You're going to get fired. You're going to, you know, it's hard, right? But if you really love being football or golf or whatever it is, you got to love your sport. You got to love spending time with people. You got to love learning. You got to kind of love or embrace uncertainty and messiness. And so if, if that's kind of how you're wired, then yeah, I think you're going to, you're going to be a great coach because you're going to pour a lot into that opportunity. So it really shouldn't be viewed as kind of a job and a way to make a living. I mean, that's important, but you really have to love it. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but you, you really have to love it. And you see that with, I've just, what I've seen with the best, you know, these coaches of professional sports teams that I've been around who, you know, make millions and millions of dollars they didn't get into coaching. They, you know, they weren't 16, 18, 20 thinking, wow, how can I make $20 million? That was never their mindset. They just ate, breathed, slept rugby or hockey or cricket or netball or whatever. And they just kept following the path. And, you know, now some of them are compensated really, really well, but that was never the driving force. So you don't play the role of a coach. You, You really have to love it and love being around people. And then also, if you love it, you're going to invest time and energy into that to, to get better. And you're never satisfied. You know, that's a hallmark of great coaches or successful people in any, any field. But it's also a bit of a curse because it's easy to burn out. And you're never done. You're never finished. Your job, in a sense, or your work is never done. Like, you never leave your office or the field or the court or wherever saying, well, okay, guess we're done. I finished everything I need to do today. You never finish. You're never done. So there's always more. So you have to have that drive, and they do. And I don't think that's learned. I think that's, you know, it's kind of finding your path in life, finding your place. And so you you really love what you do, and you invest a lot in it. But then 
you have to have either people around you or, you know, through experience and wisdom, learn when to stop and where that threshold is, right? And what I see is most of us don't really find that. You don't know until you're there. So you don't know what enough is until you cross that line and you get sick or your relationship's in trouble or you start to feel out of balance and you don't feel a connection with your athletes anymore. So you keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you cross that line. And so as much as possible, I advise young coaches, any coach really, to kind of create a board of advisors, people around you who aren't necessarily in your sport and don't care what happened in the British Open last week. Maybe don't even watch golf, but they understand you. They're people that you can trust and people who can kind of gauge the temperature in a sense of the engine and get a sense when you're overheating or revving too high and be able to provide some support and feedback. And the other thing I I just really have started to notice lately, I didn't really think about too much until I got more kind of more immersed in high performance sport on a more regular basis. And it's this kind of edge, you know, having a, I don't, I don't know. I haven't found the right word yet. Uh, I have some words, but I don't want to say them <laughs> on, on the program. We can, we can believe uh, you can no say them in a locker room. <laughs> you can leave them in a locker room, but well, for lack of a better word, like the, at the, well, I was going to say high performance level, but even coaching high school, you know, like great coaches have a little prick in them in mm-hmm. a sense. Like they're, it's not all about fun and it's not all about making everybody like each other and feel good all the time. If you want to be great or world-class, it's hard. It's not normal and it's painful and it's, it has to be brutally honest. Like that performance sucked. <laughs> you know, like you have to, you have to be willing to say what needs to be said and have those hard conversations. And that makes people uncomfortable and it leads to conflict and tension. But those great coaches, I mean, you know, like one that comes to mind is Craig Bellamy, who I spent time with, a lot of time with in Australia recently, and they're defending world champions and uh, rugby league champions. And, you know, he can be a really nice guy and really fun to be around. But there's a line there and there's standards. And you you know when you cross the line. And, you know, when you spend, if you're an athlete there and you, you know, you can joke around with them, but you also know it's business and you know what lines not to cross. So I I didn't really think about that too much before, especially coming from, you know, a lot of the academic world and there's such a push for, you know, building athlete ownership and athlete autonomy and 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 coach athlete relationships and trusting relationships. And, and it's kind of politically correct, right. To, to be, it's all about the athlete and positivity and well, you know what? It, it's not always about that. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. You've done a lot of time and investigation with the uh, New Zealand All Blacks and probably at least in 
in the news, so to speak, with the book that's just been written about their, uh, let's say, cultural enterprise in their team. Can you speak about the importance of cultural construct or the team ethos or even just a coaching ethos and core values as they set up this framework to ensure accountability to where athletes, to use a different term, shouldn't fall into this um, I guess, manner of being coddled by anyone that's trying to grow them up to try and lead them down a pathway towards being great. Yeah. Yeah. And the more, uh, I've often thought about writing a book about the next book about, about culture and team culture. And of course, many people already beat me to that. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> what, what'll come next, but to me, the more I learn about it and the more I'm around it, it's the best cultures are the strongest cultures. They come from within they're not like, you don't borrow a culture. You don't replicate a culture. You don't buy a culture. So, you know, all this emphasis on like all these books, right. About culture and the all blacks and looking at the San Antonio Spurs and new England Patriots or wherever to try and find out what, what's the answer, you know, what, how do they build great cultures? But what are the commonalities then? If they're, if they're all different, exactly. You, what are the commonalities? Yeah. You, and you, you speak to principles a lot in, in our uh, yeah. couple of days that we spent with you. Could you isolate, identify some commonalities? Yep, definitely. So a principle for me is, again, number one, tap into what's already powerful in your environment. So understand your culture first before you try and create a culture because you have one. There's always a culture. So, and I think we skip that step. You know, we learn about the All Blacks, for example. We read Legacy and say, oh, okay, well, we got to have, you know, these strategies that they do in the dance, the haka before the, the game, and, you know, debriefing circles and coach leadership or athlete leadership groups. Well, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, it's good to learn about what other people are doing, but let's look at what already exists in our, in our current culture and strengthen the good aspects of our current culture instead of trying to layer on more things that might work for somebody else in some other sport on an, another part of the planet. And really being around the All Blacks, you see that you can't replicate their culture because it is, it's, it's who they are as, as New Zealanders. That, that's not a team-building activity. They come to the All Blacks marinated in the New Zealand way of life and culture. And, and the All Blacks culture is just an extension or, you know, a microcosm of the New Zealand culture. So I think it's, you know, really important. And that's why cult, you never have, you never arrive at culture. Like you never get it up. Oh, okay. We got our culture. We're good now. No, you don't. It's always evolving mm -hmm. because it's people-based. And so you, you, it's like a bar of soap in the shower. Like you never really get it. You, you squeeze it and touch it once in a while, but you never really get it. And so you, you have to keep reaching for it and you have to, and that's like, again, I'll bring up the Melbourne storm. I was just communicating with them again today and, you know, they understand it. They're in first place again right now. It's going to be very hard to, to win again, but they're trying and they're in position to do that, but they never, they have full-time staff who are constantly daily working on what new and innovative ways to nurture their team culture. So it's not a video they show once, you know, in the preseason and then they got it. It's, it's all the time, all the time trying to create new things. So 
I think that's the principle is understanding that you never really have, you never really arrive at the team culture you want. It's got to be something that's constantly nurtured. And I actually just wrote a little, kind of inspired me to write a little uh, coach doc commentary on human kinetics that we just posted last week on this idea of, of kind of an analogy of a fire. Like you don't just build a fire and walk away from it. You have to constantly, you have to have someone guarding the fire and watching the fire at all times. You have to have someone putting new logs on the fire, stoking the fire. And so that's the same idea with your culture. Do you want that fire to be strong and bright and give off a lot of heat? Then you have to constantly be tending the fire. And and I see that, but that's hard. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of thought, a lot of creativity. And the players need to have some input into that and some ownership of that too. It's not just the coach's job. Those are some principles I, I see at the moment related to, you know, building, igniting, reigniting, sustaining, nurturing that climate, that culture, you know, who we are. It's almost like I sometimes use the analogy too of, you know, when you're cooking and you want to marinate meat, chicken, steak, whatever it might be, fish, you know, you, you make the marinade and then you, you put the meat in a, in a bag and you let it soak in there. And, and that's the same thing we want to do is we want to create that environment where we're soaking our athletes and ourselves and people in our program in that marinade all the time. How common is it for the greatest organizations, the greatest sporting teams, the greatest of coaching staffs or coaches, period, individuals, how common is it for these things to be prominently displayed in and around their facilities versus just unwritten versus just discussed and known it's all of that it's everything and that's the other thing i see too is kind of we want the quick fix yeah let's put up a quote on the board let's put something on in the locker room let's put something in the gate entrance way <laughs> yeah great but it's, it's all of that always it's it's that plus meetings plus videos plus quotes plus journals plus books plus meetings plus leadership groups plus 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 plus, plus, plus. like it's, it's embedded in everything it, you do. i think it was yes and i think it, and it's it's an and not an or right mm -hmm. it's this idea of this and this and this and this and and then keep nurturing it and i think it was Corey when we were at ucla together we were walking around the one of the strengths and conditioning rooms and you know, here's UCLA athletics. They've won more championships than any other program in the United States across all sports. And he's looking, we're both looking around the walls and there's all these motivational quotes, but there's teams and athletes in there coming and going and working out and nobody's stopping and looking up at these quotes on the wall. And so it almost becomes, you know, unless those quotes are refreshed, right? do they lose their value or their, their impact? I mean, there's some that are going to be core to who we are that you're not going to necessarily replace, but the messages. And so another principle that I've seen is, you know, think rituals, routines, and artifacts. And so what kind of rituals, routines, and symbols or artifacts do you use on a regular basis to, and keep fresh to keep, nurturing and keep that fire alive keep keep that fire burning bright and you mentioned many a principle there and, and i guess the it would take us down kind of a natural progression in discussion here to reflective practice taking inventory on whether these are 
let's say embedded elements or fluid elements within your coaching practice and your sessions with with athletes can you speak to the importance of reflection because it's a, a huge subject that we did discuss back in uh, in in LA a few months back mm-hmm. again the best are are in constant learning mode constant they're never they're never there and a quote that i like is becoming is better than being and that's from carol dweck uh, in her book mindset mm-hmm. and one of my students actually a coach uh, had that engraved on a on a whistle, <laughs> a golden whistle, and gave it to me. And it's a reminder, you know, like it's it's always about becoming. You're never really there, and so reflection is is a huge component of that. And coaches are reflective by nature. They're always questioning themselves and their decisions, um, maybe to a fault at some point. Because another hallmark of great coaches that I've seen is they're decisive. So you need to balance reflection, constant reflection with being decisive and having the courage and being committed to making decisions with enough information. You'll never have all the information you need or want, but you have enough, make a decision, move on. And so I've noticed that with a lot of coaches, they kind of, they learn more about reflective practice and reflection, and then they almost fall, you know, the pendulum swings too far and and they're over reflective. It's like, okay, I get it. It's good, but you got to make a decision right now. You got to do. You have to intervene right now with this team. Okay, you don't have time to do more reflection right now. Is that now. something you've Done found enough. these coaches come to the realization on their own, or have you helped coaches come to this realization, or is it typically taken outsider to say, hey, look, you're laboring over this too much. Let's make a choice now and deal with the consequences, good, bad, or indifferent. That's really hard, I've found, for, for coaches because high-performance coaches are usually former athletes. They're very reflective and crit- self-critical by nature, and so they want to get it right where you have to be comfortable with, with getting it good enough because, you know, there's, there's a, a match tomorrow, a game tomorrow, a different turn. Like, you have to act. And so, yeah, I find it, it takes a little pushing and it, it's it's kind of learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and that's hard, I find, for a lot of high-performance people. And another one of my favorite quotes is, don't let best get in the way of better. Mm-hmm. If you're always focused on getting better, you, you, it's never really right. It's never the best maybe that you could do, but it's good enough to keep moving and keep getting better. And then, yeah, once in a while, you're going to have those golden moments where you're in the zone and everything is perfect. but uh, it's really about always kind of striving to be better and being comfortable that you're you're getting better. And that may even mean that, you know, you lost today or you had a bad round or uh, something didn't go as planned, but, but through that, you're getting better and being comfortable with that to a point. It's, it's a fine line. It's a very sure fine line. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you speak yeah. to a couple of concepts right there that could be defined as satisfying versus optimizing and you're working towards an end that you might consider optimized best case scenario but always in the back of your mind as a coach or we as coaches here at altus and when we're working with athletes we're trying to reinforce that what you have right now is sufficient is capable of getting the job done and you need to be able to recognize that and so putting athletes in training scenarios or playing scenarios where they may not have exactly what they're looking for in terms of a full array of uh, well-tuned and dialed weapons but yet they can still eke out or produce, put together, construct a performance that will get the job done in that situation. So I think it's really important for 
uh, the listeners, both athletes and, and coaches alike, to uh, to hear that. One thing you mentioned earlier there when we were discussing, which we've collectively been discussing the entire time, what the elements, the principles, what great coaching looks like is that it is a journey and and, and the drive that and the purpose that um, coaches and also athletes have to this this mastery evolves over time. So if we were trying to answer the question, maybe a coach presents themselves to you and it's a high, he's a high school or she's a high school coach with aspirations of coaching at a higher level and they're trying to fill up these knowledge gaps, these knowledge buckets, what steps what action points could you offer in terms of advice that would then um, move them forward towards improving their skill set? It's daily. So, so daily efforts and strategies, investments in time to get better, even though you might not see a tangible result in the moment. Most, most days you won't, you won't, you won't feel better. You won't see better coaching or better results, but you have to have the patience um, to be persistent with your learning efforts. So the greatest coaches I'm, I've been around, they're, they're constantly feeding themselves in a sense. So I also know a lot of great coaches who, again, they're former high-level athletes. They don't like to read, but they're listening to podcasts. They're watching videos. So they're, they're still constantly, think of it like a drip line, like you know, an IV you want to be hooked up to a learning IV or a knowledge IV, right? So you're, you're kind of constantly getting that drip. And so it seems overwhelming, for example, sometimes to, to read a 400 page book, mm-hmm. but if you break it down and, you know, every morning I'm going to spend uh first thing I do in the morning is going to hook up to my IV and I'm going to, I know I was just with a coach last week. He says, yeah, I don't like to read too much, but I've taken your advice and I have my morning podcast walk. So he goes for a walk every morning, 30 minutes, and he's listening to a podcast. And great. So it's the first thing. He's getting a bit of exercise, get the brain flowing, blood flowing, brain's getting optimized, and he's learning. And now it's not necessarily going to result in something that he does differently that day in coaching. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you start the day feeling better about, it's a bit of a sense of control too. Because coaching, you know, when you're coaching, you live in a world that's full of unknowns and uncontrollables. And, and so this is a little small way to, to feel a little bit in control over at least part of your day. <laughs> right. um, so constantly kind of feeding that, that knowledge base and being open to listening and reading across, like you've shared with me, you know, across lots of disciplines, you know, read, read, history books and military books and science books and even, you know, fiction books, as long as you're constantly feeding yourself and and ideally, yeah, if you can combine that with a little bit of exercise, the more we're learning about, you know, the, what exercise does for the brain and, and learning. So whether it's walking or riding a bike or something social where you're moving, that actually really kind of accelerates the, the creativity. I read a piece from you building your coach learning network some time back, back in, I think, April before we were meeting there, and I really enjoyed it. In fact, it was since then, maybe. But nonetheless, uh, it was really impactful, uh, the people you surround yourself with. But what you're speaking to right now on top of that is 
the channels of information, the um, drip feeding yourself pieces of information, not feeling like you need to read a 75 page research paper or a 400 page book. But yet at the same time, you've got multiple channels that are drip feeding you. And I've always felt like I've tried to cast a wide net, which you spoke to right, right there in tuning the channels outside of the domain of, of golf, of my area of expertise, if you will. But yet at the same time, the conflict that I've found is this paradox of knowledge width versus knowledge depth. And I don't think I've actually fully solved that problem. Do I want to research and learn as much as I possibly can about a subject in the hopes that it's going to reveal some nuggets of, of truth that I can eventually turn into things that will help my coaching and therefore the results of players? Or can I jump from subject to subject in hopes that eventually I'll find something there? Do you have any thoughts on, on that or is it just a, a big wide canvas and just play that's the fun part of it. That's the fun part of going on a trip. You don't, don't know what's going to happen, right? Well, why do we take vacations or take journeys together? We, this part of it, a big part of it is the unknown and being surprised occasionally, right? Think mm -hmm. about the memories that really stick with you after a trip or a vacation. It's, it's, it's the surprising moments, things that you didn't, unanticipated things. That's what you always remember most. So, being surprised. So to, to allow yourself to put yourself in a position to be surprised sometimes, cause your brain is always trying to make connections subconsciously. Your brain doesn't, it, it, it doesn't like open loops. So your brain is always trying, no matter what your experience you're having, your brain is trying to connect it to some other experience. So if you're going broad and sampling broad, basically having experiences, the connections will come. And especially if you have quiet moments and, and again, that's where you come back to exercise, you build in some exercise, the regular exercise routines that, that stimulates your brain even more to make those connections. And so, but I also think you're right that there's going to be moments where you need to get off the bus, so to speak, and say, you know what, I'm going to spend four hours in this museum today. So I'm just, or I'm going to stay here for a day and just, and go a little deeper. How deep? Well, that depends on, you know, a lot of factors, but at least do that occasionally. So you could think of it. I have a friend who works in the mining industry and, you know, it's a big part of what they do. Most of what they do is, is surveying and, and exploring exploration. So that's kind of what we do as, as learners and coaches, we're exploring, taking core samples, right. From different areas. But then when they find a core sample that looks promising, then they go and set up camp and they drill deep and do more drilling, maybe even set up a mine. So, you know, we might think about it that way there, you know, keep, keep the surveying broad, but occasionally when you come across a topic that kind of strikes a passion in you, or you're really curious about it, you'll have a feeling, right? A lot of it, we try, I think sometimes we try and be so logical about it. Like I need to know, you know, I should know more about feedback. Well, what do you feel like learning more about right now? What do you feel, you know, through your interactions with your athletes and your coaches? Because there's all these kind of signs and cues around us that we sometimes ignore. So being more in tune with what you feel at the moment and, and follow that. And I got to be honest with you, I have always have books on the go, but I used to be very regimented. And like, if I started a book, I'm not starting another book until I finished that book. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but you know, it was hard, right? Cause sometimes 
I just wasn't into it. I, but I had to start it and I got to finish it. It's part of being disciplined. Thank you. And now, you know, I bounce around books all over the place because if it's not speaking to me in a sense at the moment, then you know what? I'm going to leave it and I'll come back to it and pick up something else that's kind of calling my name more right now. I've got five books sitting right in front of me on my yeah. desk, all with, yeah. all at different stages of completion and all dog-eared to, yeah. to some yeah. level with notes all through them. So you've given me a good mm-hmm. good measure of forgiveness and, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and freedom sure. to say that that's okay right there. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had mentioned something there that um, struck a chord with me. You said uh, open loops versus closed loops. And I guess open loops would be, uh, could be summarized as maybe not knowing where closed loops are. We know what this problem looks like. We know a solution to it, and therefore we know how to solve that problem. And coaches that I speak to, and I'm talking about coaches that work at the highest level, have always said to me, you know, it's okay not knowing. But in not knowing, that speaks to the need to be vulnerable in the eyes of athletes. That's that's a delicate slope, isn't it? And it requires um, a respect, a trust, and honor between two people or an entire team and a coaching staff that says, you know what, sometimes we won't know answers and we'll figure it out along the way. Can you speak to that concept within the greatest of coaching organizations and the greatest of coaching teams that vulnerability and not be, not knowing all the answers is actually okay? Yeah, that's. I think that's more on our consciousness, I guess you could say, in the last few years as the profession of coaching has evolved and, and people are having, we're starting globally to better define what a coach is and should look like and should know, and, you know, really truly becoming a a profession, no different than medicine or, or engineering. And part of that awakening, I guess, is realizing that we're in the people business and people are complex and moments are complex and we need to be comfortable with not the old view of a coach was exactly as you described, you know, someone who has the answers, a sage, you know, someone who provides the guidance. But even if you go back, you know, thousands of years into Eastern philosophy and leadership philosophy and things like that, it's, you know, it's, it all kind of comes back to this idea of, leading people to Mm self-awareness, not leading them to what we know, but leading them to their own discoveries and their own kind of awakening. And, and so it's, I think it's, I see this more and more, but it's hard. It's hard, especially for uh, older coaches who grew up in a different era and, and especially come from military backgrounds where you don't question authority and there is a leader and what that, what a leader means. So I think that's that's a transformation, that's an evolution that, that we're all going through and learning to be a little bit, like you say, a little bit more comfortable with coaching being viewed more as, as a partnership or a collaborative as opposed to someone telling someone else answers. So yeah, I, I do see that. And everyone has different innate degrees of comfortableness with being vulnerable but that's why it's important to also kind of become more comfortable with realizing that it's it's not a one person show you you don't need to to be the one always leading and guiding and shaping so coaching staffs board of advisors the athletes themselves leadership groups yeah and and and, and creating that kind of atmosphere where where everyone's 
constantly learning, kind of being <laughs> willing and open to to fail okay? and and try things. So you got to model that if you want your athletes to to kind of approach their their work that way. You have to model that too. Sure, makes complete sense. Yeah, you mentioned a word evolution, and in our meeting. Our sessions we had back in in LA a few months back, you spoke at length to the concept of evolution versus revolution. I think it's a great message for athletes to hear, one that we try and communicate that when you recognize a need to improve, it's not necessarily time to break it all down and reconstruct everything. It requires kind of a systematic change. It requires patience as well to see evidence of change and, and improvement. I think you used the case study, maybe a couple, but one that's, that um, stuck out in my mind was maybe the the Brazilian soccer team. Can you speak to the concept of evolution versus revolution, maybe drawing on a case study or an example? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at in team sports, I'm not sure maybe you have examples in, in golf, but you know, the people or the organizations who who have durable success, those cultures that everyone wants to replicate, so I take John Wooden as an example at UCLA, and they won 10 championships in 12 years. But, you know, it took them, I think, 14 or 15 years to win the first one. So it wasn't one day you're a champion, then you, you have it. I mean, they're constantly tinkering. But once you, you get comfortable with that formula for you, so you're more true to yourself, uh, you're more comfortable with being true to yourself, and then... It's, it's a little bit easier to sustain because you end up attracting other people to your program who, who share those same kind of values and standards. And so then you're kind of shepherding it, what you've created, as opposed to trying to recreate something. You never really recreate success. You're always, you're always shaping an environment that puts yourself in a position to succeed. And so with the, with the example of, you know, this idea of evolution, not revolution. It is common, unfortunately, I see in professional sport in particular, where that seems to be the mindset you have to win quickly. You know, and it's, it's not uncommon to see coaches fired mid-season. You know, I think that every year in pro sports, there's an example of a coach getting fired like eight games into the season or something. And sure, yeah. Unless there's obviously many, most times there's something happening behind the scenes that we'll never read about in the media. But um, if it's just an owner that thinks a change will somehow turn the ship, I mean, we have research on a little bit of research on that, on the impact of mid-season coaching changes. And there's always a little bit of a blip improvement, but it's very, it really, it's, it's not durable or, and it doesn't really differentiate from teams that wait to the end of a season to fire a coach, for example. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen really any research or examples of this big revolutionary change, this huge shift that results in durable success. And then you look at, I mean, look at the literature in business organizations and schools and, and those groups that have, you know, durable success, they recruit, a lot of their leaders from within, right? So they're, they're people who move up through the organization. And so they're constantly, you know, replacing leaders with, with other leaders who've been marinated kind of in that system. And yeah, they have their own style and their own way of doing things, but there's not huge culture shifts. We've talked a lot about coaching from, I guess, viewing it through 
from the coach's side, but yet the recognition is we are coaches for a reason and we coaches that exist to aid a journey that athlete or athletes are traveling, teams are traveling. So from the other side, from the athlete's lens, I would, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Clearly, whilst spending time around great coaches and organizations, you've also been spending time around some great athletes. Coachability, um, a broad term, if it was broken down into some sub-elements within coachability, what are the traits that you see in great athletes that would then speak to the effectiveness of the, the coaching interventions, coaching practices, and the, the value system that these organizations have? Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, talent wins, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think sometimes we overlook that and we we try and change people or make people into something they aren't or can't be. And I've never been a big believer in limits, but, you know, I've been teaching for over 20 years and working with lots of different groups and we're all made differently. And some of us are never going to be world champions. I don't care what culture you're in or how hard you try, it's not going to happen. Genetics matter. And so there's a lot of great athletes, world champions who are not coachable and are not likable and are not fun to be around and not good teammates but they're going to kick your ass. So <laughs> you know, it's, it is what it is. Right. And, and so I think what I'm seeing more and more is that, you know, kind of meeting athletes where they are, there need to be some standards and some, some boundaries. But I think sometimes we, we tend to try and reshape people into an image we have when that's not who they are. And especially when you, you know, say you get an athlete at 18 or 20, well, they've had 20 years to become the person they are. And you think you're going to change who they are, you know, somehow do something different to make them become a different person. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty um, ludicrous, isn't it? Yeah. But to me, it's more about strength, right? Like maximizing strength and, and helping people be the best them. And great coaches, I think, understand that. They find that. They really invest in trying to understand their athletes and who they are and what makes them tick. And But at the same time, if, if you're part of a, an organization, a team, a group, you know, there, there have to be some standards and some boundaries. And so how much are you willing to allow an athlete who has a supreme talent and you need and want to be a part of your group kind of blur those lines? You know, what what are you willing to sacrifice i guess in terms of core values and standards and some people will say not at all i don't care there's you know eight billion people on the planet i'll find another athlete others are well yeah i get it wade but you know what there's one jordan spieth on the planet and he's quirky and he's got his way and and we're going to work with that you've again spent time around the best and here at Altus, we talk about separating skills. We talk about developing competitive advantage through many a process embedded inside our practices here from taking inventory through reflection towards architecting or designing practice, et cetera, et cetera. And you wrote an article in 2016, the Human Kinetics Coach Education Center, and it's titled Coaching Mental Toughness from Red Bull to Bob Bowman, where you identified 
the aspects or some pretty important aspects towards developing that mental toughness. And one of the questions we get asked from athletes and parents and, and other coaches is, how do you develop that separating skill of performance under pressure when it's one thing to be able to demonstrate the necessary physical skills when there's necessarily nothing on the line or a very low level of stress or arousal. But as soon as the the shot that you're about to hit or the pass that you're about to make or insert appropriate sporting analogy for your particular game out there, when push comes to shove and you have to perform right now, what things have you identified that you can, I guess, trace back to coaching practices and things that athletes could learn from uh, from this conversation that they could do themselves to increase the probability of success when it matters? Yeah, you know, more and more I, I see that is shaped at such a young age. And again, we're trying to, you know, can you make someone world-class mentally tough at 20 if that's not who they are? I think you can improve it for sure, but when you look at the world's best athletes, they all, and you, you kind of trace their life history. They all had that, that was shaped when they were five, when they were six, you know, competing with siblings, the type of environment they grew up in and competing against mom and dad. And like it, it's, and part of that is genetic. That's not even environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's both nature and nurture. Exactly. Exactly. So Trying to make someone mentally tough is really hard. <laughs> so in a perfect, and that's a lot of the college coaches I work with, that's what they recruit for. I'm going to look for mentally tough athletes. And, and one of the great coaches I was around here, she's a national championship coach, Hall of Famer. She would walk around tournaments in her sport. And she, most coaches are, are watching athletes when they're competing well and and looking for them to make, you know, what kind of big plays they make and things like that. She would just walk around and look for moments where a team was struggling and she would focus on the team that was losing or struggling or making errors. And she wanted to see which athletes, like how are the athletes failing? And and that's really what she was looking for because she knew that I can teach you the skills. I can, I can help you with your putting and, you know, short game and things like that or whatever sport it is. I can teach you those things and help you get really good at those things. But it's going to be really hard for me to make you a different kind of person. The best coaches really look for that when they recruit athletes. Now, having said that, you don't want to just write people off. You need to fail. And I almost think more and more you need to fail big. Like you you need the only way to test yourself and to learn from that is to put yourself in positions where you are, they're the, almost guaranteed likelihood that you're going to fail and it's going to be, it's going to be a big fail. And now, obviously in certain sports, you got to deal with, you know, physical issues and you you don't want to put people in danger, but they, they need to have, I, I don't think, and this is where I see it's getting harder and harder because we're so overprotective of our kids and I hate to sound like the old guy when I was young, right? But <laughs> you know, I'll give you an example. I was at, my daughter plays water polo at a fairly high level and she's 14 now and a couple of years ago we were at a match and, and she was getting pulled under the water and that's a rough sport and, you know, kind of punched and clearly fouled. And other parents around me were yelling at the ref and jumping up and down. And one guy parent turned to me and said, why aren't you going crazy right now? Did you see what just happened to your daughter? I said, yeah. 
She needs to learn how to cope with failure. You're going to get punched and kicked in life sometimes. And daddy's not going to be there to step in and save you. Right. Okay. But we don't let them fail. So do you have practices or matches or put your athletes in positions where they're going to fail? You put them in a situation where they're likely not going to be able to make that shot or they're going to get a double bogey or they're going to miss a cut or, you know, whatever it is in your sport. And not be there to save them. Let them hurt. In contrast to that, bailing them out <laughs> yeah. when they're in trouble. In contrast to that, coddling them and telling them yeah. they're they're um, they're doing a good job when they're actually not. You're not being exactly. honest with them with yourself. And yeah, and the list could go on, couldn't it? Most most definitely. So you need we call them truth tellers. Yeah. And there's you know we need to surround our athletes. And if you're an athlete listening, you need to surround yourself with truth tellers. People who are not going to gloss it over and say, oh, yeah, but you did. You tried so hard today. You know what? You suck today. That was a bad decision. That was a bad <laughs> shot. That was a bad club selection. <laughs> yeah. And that sucks. And you might not like hearing it, but you need truth tellers in your life. Speak to your observations on effectiveness in training. We're always looking to create situations, environments, if you will, where one plus one equals two, meaning what we do in the training ground will turn into improved performance. Are there any, any advice you can offer both coaches and athletes out there, boxes to check, so to speak, of here are the do's and here are the don't do's? In terms of a training in terms of, In terms of trainings, yes. One thing I've started to learn more and more is the value of kind of ending sessions with unfinished business. So uh, we talked a little bit about this, I think, when we were in LA, but Mm -hmm. yeah, this idea of, you know, sometimes we, the common thinking is you want to end a training session on a high note. So with a, a, you know, a crisp swing or a a nice round or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. like you want to finish on a high, you want to finish feeling good, clean, you want to finish clean. But there's, I think uh, what I'm finding more and more and digging into different kinds of research that. You know, there's a lot of value to sometimes, not always, but sometimes finishing ugly, finishing with a struggle and you didn't quite master that, that, that swing or that whatever it is that you're working on that day and you kind of finish frustrated. And what happens is your brain keeps kind of working on that, trying to, trying to figure it out while you're sleeping and before you come back to your next session. And it, it you know, it stimulates reflection and growth. So I think that's something to kind of experiment with, to play with a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, put something very challenging or complex at the end of a training session and, and don't master it. Don't finish it. Don't complete it. And so you kind of walk away a little frustrated and confused. That's okay. And it, and it seems very messy, doesn't it? And I, I, yes. I just real quick, yeah. I can speak to an, a recent experience of a player who is spending their Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday preparing for a major championship and things aren't working to their satisfaction, nor my satisfaction as a coach that's observing and trying to move them in a direction to where their best performance is going to show up on Thursday through Sunday. And this particular player shows back up on Wednesday morning ready to get after it again and says, I slept on it last night and I had a dream about what the solution is. And invariably that solution was the appropriate solution. It provided for them exactly what they wanted. So yeah, to use your term again in, in context here to marinate over that problem overnight is actually an okay thing. It doesn't need to be so pretty and clean. And yeah, I think it's great advice. Yeah. I love that example. And it's not always going to be that immediate or work out that, that well, but 
that's part of the process of, of getting better. But there's also going to be other sessions where you do want to finish clean because it's more about emotion and feelings. You know, and it's it's not about skill development today. Today is I just want you to feel good about yourself. Yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. Is there anything you would adamantly say that you absolutely have not seen work beyond psychological and physical abuse? I think we could probably both agree there, at least in my context or, or, or my expertise, my years of doing this, those things haven't worked. Not that I've actually tried them. <laughs> <laughs> But are there other things that just don't work when you're trying to work with athletes to help them see a direction towards improvement? Yeah, fear and demeaning, bullying, essentially, for lack of a better, more scientific term. Mm-hmm. You know, again, historically and in the movies, um, that's in certain sports in particular, that's kind of been quite common, striking fear and, and giving players ultimatums and kind of essentially bullying them using using physical activity as a form of punishment now you know within reason there's there's silly fun games and maybe you have little things going on with your team where they have to do push-ups if they make a mistake or something but it but it's it's in a the spirit of it is in a in a fun team kind of mindset not punishing someone for making a mistake uh with you know by embarrassing them and it's it's crazy to me that and it's because I teach a, teach a coaching class at the university, and there's always every year, every year there's material, new material. You know, having college basketball coach recently having her whole team, uh, and this is Division One. I. I mean, you know, high level having the whole team do log rolls up and down the floor, the court until they puke, and so literally rolling in their own mm. vomit. <laughs> while another team is waiting to use the practice floor, so in front of an audience, I mean, yeah, what what does that serve? What, right. what who? <laughs> that's demeaning people. That's bullying people. That that's that's a power issue. I'm mm. in charge, right? So that's something that definitely does not work. And that means, but there's going to be moments as a coach where you're really frustrated or pissed off and angry, and you you know, kind of knee jerk reaction is I'm going to show them, but that never works you might get a little hit the next day you know they're a little more dialed in a little more focused because they're afraid but that doesn't work in the long run i mean those are techniques we use to torture people right that that doesn't work for that that just makes people anxious or resentful versus the contrast of that demonstrating love which was coach wooden's uh, most important word in the in the dictionary correct yeah but you know it's really important for us to remember with that when you discipline people and you make them do hard things because they need that, they need that, and, and everyone needs discipline and structure, that's also showing love. Mm-hmm. So it's understanding love is really defined as acting in the best interest of your athletes. So there's going to be times when they need some discipline, and it's not going to be fun today. Sure. But these are things we need to work on. I think that's great advice. It's a great way to frame that there. How about? speak to the environment these young athletes are growing up in and functional versus dysfunctional parental roles. And from um, the experience of, 
observation of these relationships or maybe what the research suggests is functional versus dysfunctional? Because we get so many questions from parents looking for advice. I'm, I've got this talented young player, this talented young athlete, but you know what? I wasn't a performer in that sport or maybe they weren't mm-hmm. a, a performer in that sport and all they know is their own experience, how they grew up and what worked for them. But that may not necessarily be the most well-informed perspective. Can we create an informed perspective around your experience in, in advising coaches to deal with parents and parents to deal with athletes? Yeah, kind of follow their lead as much as possible. I think we often underestimate how wise kids are, you know, and and self-aware they are. So, you know, follow their lead, listen to them a little bit more and observe them a little bit more and, and ask lots of questions, not necessarily outcome questions, but more process kinds of questions, you know, how do you feel about golf right now? How'd you, you know, how'd you feel about your round? Yeah, I know what your score was. I know what you shot. I know how many birdies you had and how many bogeys, but more about the experience. Like how, how does that experience feel at the moment? Not pushing maybe as much as we think we need to push, giving them a little bit more space. And as you know, talent development isn't tidy and linear. Sometimes you go backwards and sometimes you go sideways and sometimes you just need to stop. So listening to them a little bit more and following their lead a little bit more. And then also trying to, to plug into a network. So if you have a, you know, a talented child, you want to connect. It's almost like a support group, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, we lost our first daughter uh, to a heart defect and, and we connected with a support group that we're, you know, 15 years later, we're still connected to. And, and so surround, you know, tap into a support network of other parents who've, you know, have high performing kids. It doesn't have to be in golf. It could be in, in other areas. I don't know if you have something like that, that you offer through Altus, but, um, you know, connecting parents with other parents so they can, because it's really, it's just about sharing stories and experiences and, and, and feeling, con- not feeling alone and isolated. The answers are out there. Maybe you don't possess them right now, but there's most definitely someone there that can provide you maybe not the explicit answer, but uh, send you off in a direction where to where eventually you'll find the answer. I think it's great advice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and let's and let's let's go deeper into resources, resources for coaches. If there were top two or three resources that you said coaches must go here and absorb as much information as they possibly could. This podcast, number one, right? <laughs> your, your book, number two. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you said it. Sure, why yeah. not? Above um, and beyond those two, but you're, you're, yeah. you're spot on, by the way. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah th- th- there's, there seems to be a lot of podcasts, I've noticed, popping up more and more. And uh, again, not necessarily coaching podcasts, but one that I like a lot is uh, Vern Gambetta. He has one gain, G-A-I-N. And that he has lots of resources, but he has a regular podcast that, that I enjoy. It's really, I mean, he's in his seventies, he's coached just about everybody around the world, every different sport. So mm-hmm. really a, a coach's coach, you know, and really, um, makes it real. The other one that I know a lot of my students like, and a lot of coaches I've been around lately really enjoy is the mastery podcast. Finding mastery, Michael Gervais. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's different. I mean, it's almost like a counseling session sometimes and therapy. So you're not necessarily going to get a bunch of coaching strategies, but people seem to really resonate with that. And mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people enjoy his, and I do too. Uh, the Players' Tribune. Have you looked into that? Certainly. Yeah. Familiar, yeah. Familiar yeah. With it. Mm-hmm. 
So I like, I recommend that one a lot uh, for athletes, for parents, right. And coaches, because you have athletes kind of unfiltered sharing their experiences, which is really powerful. And, and some and coaches sometimes right in there too, but mostly athletes. Those are ones that kind of pop into my head at the moment. I, I just read a book recently, another person, I think you may, I'm bringing you a copy of his book if you don't have it, by the way, when I see you Thank next, you. but it's uh, Jerry Lynch. Uh, Familiar he, now. Yeah, you could look him up, Way of Champions. Okay. And Jerry Lynch, and he's written many books and he has podcasts and he works with teams all over, all over the United States. And uh, all different sports. He's based out of Santa Cruz, California. And the uh, book I just finished reading, uh, I've known him for probably 20 years now, but Coaching with Heart, which is, um, he has a unique way of of kind of tapping into the emotional side of, of performance and coaching. And, and so I think people would enjoy looking at some of his work as well, especially I think it, res- it, it connects well with golf, his approach. Uh, with the demands of golf and so much of golf is in your head, right? And, yeah, and kind of in, in, in yourself in, in a sense. So those are some that come to mind uh, right away. Those are brilliant. Thank you very much. Where can people learn more about you, what you do and uh, tap into more of your resources beyond the book? Well, I write commentaries, as you mentioned, for human kinetics. You could just Google coach doc, human kinetics, Wade Gilbert, I also keep fairly active Twitter feed where I, I share links and resources to coaching material. I think my publisher also keeps a Facebook page for coaching better every season um, where they, they repost things as well. And on that coach doc website, there's everything's free. It's open access. Uh, the commentaries, there's some webinars some videos. So though there are some places to kind of stay connected. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 